0: Welcome to This Must Be The Place, a podcast about communities and the people who build, support, and live in them. I'm your host, Greg Dunlap. So our guest today is Jasmine Sun. Jasmine's a writer exploring social and information ecosystems. She's currently on leave from Stanford to research tech policy at Schmidt Futures, and she also runs Reboot, a newsletter and event series on technology, humanity, and power. So uh, welcome to the show, Jasmine.
1: It's great to be here.
0: So I found, you know, some articles of yours online uh, on Medium, and and they're, you know, they largely relate to how uh, cities or other physical communities relate back to online communities. And how did you kind of get interested in that and start writing about it?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, I think my story starts the way that a lot of people do who are interested in online communities and communities in general. So, um, I I grew up using online communities at an age when I couldn't go out and make my own and go and meet people. So I had the computer instead. Um, So since I was like I don't know like ten or so, I had lots of anonymous WordPress blogs, and I would comment on other people's blogs and share posts. I used like Reddit when it was like pretty early. I used this old web forum for pet bird owners called tail feathers, like there are just all these like weird niche online spaces that I got really into because, of course, I was stuck at home as a kid and I didn't have much better to do Um, in terms of the transition to, okay, like, how did I start thinking about these online spaces in relation to cities and how they organize themselves? Well, so, I mean, I've always loved travel in cities, so uh, I've always been fascinated by the magic of a city, why it's ex- so exciting to like be in the middle of it, one, and to explore it even without actively doing anything. Uh, so when I got to college, I took several urban studies courses. I was really interested in that. And I just started to notice all these parallels between um, the concepts that I was learning in class, like whether that's something like social infrastructure or eyes on the street, and the online communities that I was continuing to be a part of. And of course, I'm not like the first person by any means or to notice this parallel. Um, There's so many people who have talked about it, uh, but it did become something that I kept thinking about over and over.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've always been, it's interesting because I've always been really into cities too. And one of the things that I feel like I've always noticed is that like cities have personalities just like people do. And I feel like, I mean, wouldn't you think that I, or would you say that online communities are the same way? I feel like, I feel like the groups of people you bring together in something influence it in ways that are hard to define sometimes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I don't know if you've read that Paul Graham essay called like Cities and Ambition or something like that, but uh, he talks about like how you can define and i swear it's not like all the other program essays like it's not about like <laughs> or, like i don't know like product market fit or whatever else he writes about um but this essay it talks about how you can tell the personality of a city by eavesdropping and like in mm. some cities when you eavesdrop everyone's talking about money 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 career in some cities people are talking about their friends and their family like you can just like sit in a coffee shop in different places around a city, and you get a sense of the personality from the conversations around you. And I thought about doing something like, like how do you do that similarly in online communities? Like just eavesdropping, like lurking, I guess would be the word, right? Um, right? And that's how you get the sense of the personality.
0: Ah, that's, that's so true. I mean, I think when I first met my wife, she lived in San Francisco and I lived in Portland and I would come down to visit her and I would be working out of coffee shops and it would just, I, I, I just could not stand the way that everyone around me was always talking about their startups. It drove me absolutely (laughs) crazy. And it's like, I just never, I just never thought about that. It's so true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I go to school in Silicon Valley, so it's very, very different there. Um, Yeah. Sort of enjoying the rest I'm getting during quarantine, not being there, being at home.
0: Oh, yeah. I can imagine. Um, So, you know, one of the things that you've written about in your uh, in your in your essays is how cities kind of act as platforms for people like how what, what kind of similarities do you see there?
1: Yeah, um, so I think that this core similarity between cities and social media platforms that I always think about is, what, I'm just gonna call like the platform content distinction. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what that is is there's like two groups involved in both the uh, the actual architecture and the use of the platform. So you have one group that's designing and building the infrastructure that they're usually a small group, they're probably powerful, and they're probably more homogenous, less diverse. On social media, that's going to be like the Facebook executives or their product team who are deciding on the individual features and policies. Um, In a city, that's probably the planners, the architects, the legislators. Um, And then you have a totally different group of people who are the users generating content, they are um, interacting with each other, Uh, they're creating stuff, and they're using the space that has been Uh, offered to them by the first group. And these people are also culture creators, whether that's intentional or not intentional, like without great users, um, the platform is not a place that people want to be and the types of users will decide who wants to be there. And like, these are the citizens of a city, right? Um, They're probably way more diverse than the people designing the platform. And while users or citizens are constrained by the laws around them, by the places that they can go or not go, um, I find that users and citizens are always pushing back against this Constraints. People are not just uh, subjects to like their technological overlords, people are always asking for uh, new features or finding ways to sort of uh, work around uh, rules and constraints and laws. So,
0: um, and, and I mean, you give, you give the example of Reddit as a uh, sort of a city as platform uh, thing. Like how, how do you see the, uh, how do you see that relate back to cities?
1: Yeah, so I think with Reddit. Reddit's Reddit's really interesting to me. I feel like people don't talk about it enough when they talk about social media. People are always talking about like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but actually Reddit is I I don't know what it is now, but like it's very consistently in the top 5-10 sites that people around the world use. Um, What makes Reddit interesting to me is because it's mostly strangers, like you're not interacting with people you know, most of the time. And also that there are very distinct communities as in subreddits that I see as sort of like neighborhoods, that some are private, some are public places you can enter and exit, but like you're not actually confined to a particular community, you're not confined to a neighborhood, but rather you can move between them, you can be part of multiple, you can visit here, and then leave and then visit another one. Um, And so that's why I think Reddit is really interesting to explore and where oftentimes this analogy makes the most sense.
0: One of the things that you wrote about in um in that article was this idea of contested spaces. Like you talk about how um like like skateboarders are people who push back on the norms of a city to use it for their own for their own purposes, maybe not in a way that the city defined it? Like, how do you see that surfacing in online communities?
1: Right. So because you have the platform content distinction, um, the users are often not happy or dissatisfied with uh, what they've been giving. Or maybe they are totally happy with it, but it's, it's just more fun to figure out, to be subversive, to like try to skate in places you're not supposed to, or do things like that. And so for example, with Reddit, when I'm always fascinated by how with a very, very simple UI, um, like literally Reddit is just a collection of web forms. There's not a lot in the ways of other features that shape your experience. Um, communities and moderators have found quite unique ways to uh, create new features or norms, like there's a subreddit Called like our change my view and you're supposed to try to convince other people to uh, persuade them to change their original opinion and if you successfully do that you get this thing called a delta which is basically like a token or an award that shows that you have convinced somebody but reddit doesn't actually have a system of awarding deltas like this is something that like one group of people just decided like this would be good um but what reddit does have is you can put little uh, tags or badges next to your name where you can write any amount of text. So the moderators now say that if somebody awards you a delta, they keep a running record of how many you've gotten next to your name and it, and it appears only in that subreddit. So now you have this sort of like social reputation token within a particular community. That was something that Reddit never planned to create, but uh, people have sort of innovated or imagined in some way or another.
0: No, I hadn't really ever thought about that because I think about some of the Reddit communities that I'm a part of, and you know those things. There, I think they're called Flare, I think is yeah, 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 yeah. And some of them, some of them have really, really complicated systems for like identifying <laughs> yourself in the Flare of their community or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm, Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, because because you know, if I think about other technology platforms, like I think that the hashtag kind of came out that way too. Like people just kind of finding a use case for something that wasn't there, and so they just created a standard around it that kind of stuck.
1: Exactly. Like there, there are a lot of ways in which that uh, like users find things that the platform executives or the designers like never thought of in the first place, and then there's this weird tension where it's like as the people who designs the platform and makes the decisions, do I want to actually institutionalize this thing that my users are demanding? Like people are always asking Twitter for an edit button, but like right. as the Twitter designer, I don't know. Like I'm always like, oh, there's so many ways an edit button could go wrong.
0: So- oh yeah. Yeah. Um So another thing you've, I mean, that's that's sort of related to this, and I mean, it's all kind of related the same way. But you talk about you, you talk about social infrastructures. So, like, why, what, what do you, what do you mean when you when you say that in in the context of cities and online communities?
1: yeah um so social infrastructure is a concept from sociologist eric Kleinenberg. Um he wrote a book called palaces for the people that pitches this topic he's also done a great podcast on 99 uh, percent invisible about it so social infrastructure what it is is it describes shared spaces um physical spaces that bring all kinds of people together and the idea that these spaces spur civic life so things like uh, parks, libraries, churches, community centers, um, even a busy sidewalk or a bus, I think to a lesser extent. Um, And like the point of these places is they're not necessarily about like your closest family and friends, rather they're about establishing weak ties um, and creating an environment where people who would not ordinarily choose to go meet each other can learn to live and interact alongside each other. And um, this is important because Well, well, there's a lot of reasons that's important. Like Eric starts the book with this like really powerful example about a heat wave in Chicago in 1995 Um, and 700 people or something like that died in this heat wave. Uh, the, those who are most affected tended to be um, older people uh, people of color and who didn't have local networks in particular people who didn't have friends and family or even like acquaintances in the area and so they didn't have others to stay with or people to bring them food and like just nobody to lend a hand and so like that's where i start to think of things like mutual aid projects that often were' our neighborhood based um, done by community organizers where uh, you'll like go around the neighborhood during the pandemic and get groceries for people who are immunocompromised or older folks who are at risk to COVID. Um, And so social infrastructure thinks about like, where are the spaces that you establish these acquaintance-based connections, these weak tie connections that are not people you talk to every day, but in a time of support and survival, um, that's where you can go to. Like I think about how America is a lot less uh, religious and less church going than they were a century ago. Um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Uh, there are, like, lots of reasons that could be a good phenomenon. But, like, churches used to provide, like, the emotional, the social, and the financial support to struggling people, even if you yeah. didn't really know them. And, like, Aya is like, okay, well, where are we going to replace that? We still need the support, even if people choose that they religion is, like, not something they want to be in their lives. Um, so then it's like, okay, we are in a pandemic. Nobody's going to the library. Nobody's going to church. Like, where are people going to find these resources? Where will you get mutual aid? Or where will you even just get exposure to different kinds of people um, and learn to become tolerant? Like I think about kids all the time. Like if you're not going to school, how do you learn to share your toys and work with people who are not the same as you? Um, And I think it's very tough for digital places to replicate um, the qualities that make social infrastructure effective.
0: Yeah, I mean, for for one thing, it seems like social, like, like, you know, social spaces are much more, your, your encounters with people seem like they would be much more random, right? Whereas mm-hmm. online spaces seem like their membership is much more curated. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So like, there's one like interest space networks, like things like Reddit or this pet bird forum where like people are going in kind of a transactional way. Like you go to get advice on like, what do I feed my pet or like, I need to buy um like a tool, which one's the best one on the market. And I And like these transactions, actually, I think they're totally fine when you're talking about like your neighbors, like asking your neighbor for some flour or eggs or whatever, because that can actually convert to future support. Whereas online, Mm -hmm. I think it's very difficult for relationships in one arena, say a particular hobby forum or like gaming, like lots of people make friends in games that they just like never meet again because there's no way for that to convert the way they can in real life.
0: Yeah, and then of course the 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 selection of people who are available to you meet to meet there are to some extent self selecting. Like they're people who are in who are interested in platform gaming. Then that makes it so that they're the people who can afford to be interested in platform gaming, right? And so it's like it seems like it's much more your 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 you're not getting as diverse a set of people as you would in your neighborhood or at the park. I mean, to some extent, neighborhoods are like that too, but I mean, I mean, it seems like you are forced to encounter a much broader set of people out in the real world in general.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where the whole like contact theory hypothesis comes in, like the psychology concept that you can reduce prejudice if in-group and out group members interact provided like a certain set of conditions Uh, about like equal standing, respect for norms, like cooperation, things like that. Um, But yeah, like in online spaces, there's just much less of it. And even if you're in a diverse group, I would say that like you oftentimes don't know, or there are incentives to not reveal your identity, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. if you are a woman or like a black person or a trans person on the internet, um, I can imagine a lot of environments where you don't want to show people that. And Yes, I understand why. Like, I I don't, I don't really want to be advertising in a lot of spaces that I'm a woman. I certainly say not in a lot of gaming spaces. But uh, as a result, people don't get the benefits of contact theory and learning to interact with diverse people.
0: Another thing that you talk about that's really that was really interesting to me as far as how tech has affected social infrastructure is this idea that it formalizes what were previously informal relationships. Right? Like, so you talk about how, you know, you used to have to know a person like if you wanted work done on your house if you needed someone to come and fix something you would normally you would either know an individual or you'd reach out to your community to get an individual and that increases your level of you know of bonding or in your in your community whereas with everything being sort of app based now it sort of rips those cords away
1: yeah, exactly. And I think that's like one side effect of the gig economy, like things like uh like Instacart or Uber or whatever. I don't know. There's even like Rover for dog sitting. Like there right. used to be a lot of ways that a lot of things that incentivized people to make friends I guess yeah. <laughs> it, seems, like, it yeah. seems so like small and tiny like oh we can still make friends just with other people but like if you need like you, now when you want to send your kids somewhere like you got it before you you would try to know the other parents for example um, now yes you can but there's also so many alternatives when you want food you can just order delivery when you need to borrow something and I, I feel like this is one of those things like one of these side effects that people just don't think about because it feels so so small until it's gone Gone, and then you're like, oh shoot! Um, and then there's the inequality stuff that you mentioned, which is all right. of these services cost money, quite a lot of money. Like <laughs> delivery food is so so much more than um, <laughs> they're just right. going to get it and. Uh, That's how you get things like this heat wave where uh, everybody's confined to their homes or like COVID, like you can't go outside. Who's going to be able to afford to get delivery groceries? Who has to rely on social connections to do it as a favor? And who doesn't have those social connections and can't afford it and will just never get the resources that they need?
0: And it seems like it would work the other way, too. Like if you're somebody who, say, cleans houses for a living, you know, one of the ways that you build that business is through word of mouth and connecting with people who refer you to their friends and family, who refer you to their friends and family and et cetera. But by by abstracting that behind an app, it seems like you lose the opportunity to build those kinds of networks in the same way.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't have familiarity. Um, Like, Mm. I've never been in that position. But I I could imagine that it is hard to lose control over your business. And yeah, in those kinds of ways, like when you have these marketplace apps, whether that's um, like Yelp or Uber, basically it centralizes all of these small businesses and transactions onto a single platform. And now you you just lose control of like, I don't know whether I'm going to be on the front page of Uber Eats today, or I don't know whether I'm going to be buried behind all this stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would imagine this would have a pretty disruptive effect on people who's, who had already figured out this is what I'm going to do with my business. And this is what I know works. And all of a sudden it's just, they decide to demote us in the algorithm. Who knows why? And it's sure. crude.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, to be clear, I don't have any evidence that, that was hap- that that's happening either. It was just something that occurred to me as we were kind of talking about this, that that could like, affect the people who are looking for those services and just as much the people who are providing them as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I was trying to think of examples cuz like I'm I'm sure there I feel like I remember there have been. But even even something like I I remember when Facebook was doing their pivot to video and they told everybody like hey guys, like video is where it's at. If you are a media business, you have to like I, I remember there's like college humor or something like that. Like you got to invest all of this in video. We're going to give you so many views and they would like pump up the view counts on videos that people were posting. Oh, right. And it turned yeah. out that these views never converted to websites. They all all the ad money went to Facebook. It just like wasn't helping these content creators. And they had basically relied completely on the information that Facebook gave them, information that was uh, inflated and exaggerated to benefit Facebook. And then they a lot of business sort of went under for that reason. And I could imagine the same thing happening with restaurants that have to rely on third party marketplaces, too.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, one thing that I, you know, there's a topic that we've touched on on the podcast a lot in the past is, you know, moderation methodologies and how you can moderate your communities and content moderation and stuff like that. And, um, you know, you talk about how this often has, you know, I think people often think of that as a way to. Soothe or calm or even out discussions in the in their communities, but you you say that that you see it as it often having a combative, more of a combative effect. You know, can you talk about how that happens or or what you've seen as far as that goes?
1: Right, I I I think that content moderation is something where it often just depends who you are. Right. Like the analogy I think I make in one of the blog posts is to policing. I, I know that it's not the mm-hmm. same, like mm-hmm. physical violence is very different. Um, but as with the police, you have some people who are like, Yes, the police are here. They keep us safe. I want more and more and more police in my community. And that group of people probably has more social power. Like in our neighborhoods, they're like probably white and they um they're not the ones being targeted. Right. Uh and right. so the same thing happens online where content moderation is especially tough when there are perceptions or actualities that there is either bias or just a lack of transparency um this happens oftentimes like like facebook and all these other companies they're moving towards trying to use algorithms more and more in content moderation obviously because of scale reasons and also sucks to make humans like look at all this horrible content but like stuff gets taken down accidentally like the ai is not that good yet and um some communities end up getting over police like i know like sex workers activists often complain of getting over police so do people on the far right they also often say like our content gets policed way too much i, I- i'm not gonna say like adjudicate like which of these people have the correct claims but the point right. is that people just don't know what uh standards are being applied to them there's no explainability with the algorithms. It's very, very hard to get personalized responses. And like even with the police, like stuff like body cameras or reports that you have to write down, where you can like go back and review everything that has been done. Like there is absolutely no way um, on a privately owned social media site to interrogate like what kinds of social effects or biases are being replicated in the way that content is taken down. Researchers are trying; they have proxies, but it's just really hard.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's even harder when you're in a platform like a Facebook, where you know, a nobody really agreed uh, upfront to a, I don't know, worldview or you know, level of moderation or topicality that's acceptable. You know, Facebook and you know, at least for a long time, Reddit it seems to be changing a bit now, but uh, you know, seem to be much more uh, billing themselves as like an open forum rather. And then, and so that's, that's an issue because when you try and then later create norms around it with people who have already come in with a certain expectation, obviously that causes a lot of turmoil, it seems like.
1: Yeah. Like expectation mismatch is huge. And I think a lot of Like, you're never going to make everyone happy. Like, you're never going to moderate and everyone's like 100% satisfied. But I do think a lot of it is things like communications and expectations management. And I feel like a lot of times users of platforms feel kind of like, tossed around by feature changes, algorithm changes, content moderation policies, like all this stuff changes, you don't get any advance notice. And all of a sudden, like your your social life or your even your livelihood um, just gets sort of like tossed at the window. And so there's this feeling of distrust that these outsiders who have no understanding of who you are or what you want just come in, um, impose their policies, um, and then you're you just feel targeted. Like, I understand mm-hmm. why they're seen as external forces. And. I think, like, maybe, and maybe you've talked about this in a lot of your other conversations. um, My guess is that more smaller scale local moderation is a lot better. Like, you see this in certain Facebook groups or like subreddits. Like, when you come in, there are particular moderators who are part of the community that they are also moderating. So, there's a sense that they are one of us, they know us. Um, And these people set rules that are particular to their community. And I feel like Yes, people can still get angry at the mods, but there tends to be less of that distrust and pushback than with site-level admin.
0: No, and I think that you're right that a lot of it just comes from expectation management, right? Because when somebody comes into that community, they're presented with a set of rules that they can agree to or not before they start participating, as opposed to people who come in expecting something that's open and then feeling like the rug gets pulled out from under them or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I, I would never say that. Like, um, if you are a platform administrator, you should have no content policy. Like, everyone can just make whatever sure. rules. Like, if your, if your subreddit wants to break all, break the law, like, go for it. But I think it is about like, um, it would be better had uh, all, a lot of these large platforms set early on um, a set of transparent <laughs> rules and policies for like what are we gonna like for the Hunter Biden story on Twitter, like the people's problem I don't think it was just that it was taken down it was we have no idea why or like what policy this was taken down under and had these uh pl- platforms been a little bit more proactive in setting out like this is what we will allow this is what we won't allow here are all our policies we're going to keep updating you guys as they change um I-, I just think that like that kind of consistency and transparency would just have a huge effect Like in a city, for example, you can go look up the laws about what a hate crime is. You can go look up a database of all the hate crimes that have been reported or hate speech that has been reported. You can't do that on a platform.
0: Well, yeah, and certainly not on the big ones like Facebook or Twitter, whose, you know, content guidelines seem to be not just changing, but changing depending on who they get applied to.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, of course.
0: So who do you see doing kind of online social experiences well these days? You've talked about Reddit, but is there anybody else?
1: Uh, t- Well, first to clarify, I wouldn't say that like Reddit as a whole um, oh, is necessarily okay, sure. right. uh, doing it well. I, I think that a lot of, I actually like, I attribute a lot of the things that are going well in particular communities to those moderators who are a part of their community and who have mm-hmm. figured something that works out for them. Um, I I think it's hard to say because I would say that a lot of people doing it well are the the ones in there who are managing smaller scale communities, and they're not the kinds of things that you see on the news. Like there are right. thousands of small scale communities across the internet um, on all of the platforms that seem to have figured things out. Um, I think it is just like what you said about like when you have scale, when you say global connectedness and you are attempting to unite like millions and millions of people, um, billions of people in Facebook's case under one platform instead of policies, you're always going to have tension. Um, I will say that I think that it's good that Twitter is being more proactive. I just wish they were more consistent and transparent about their policies. But I... I like it better than the Facebook case I think. Or, <laughs> uh, just not, not no policies at all or very uh I don't know. It's tough. Do you have any
0: No, I mean, I was just going to say that, you know, what you you bring up what has been kind of a topic on several of my podcasts which is that you know, when you when you have a smaller or more niche community, your goal is community, right? Mm-hmm. But I but when you have something at scale, your goal is profit. And I think that's that's something that's a real dividing line between the people who are doing it well and the people who aren't, because doing community when profit is your goal is very hard, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like that's, I think, where uh, the whole like, oh, the platform is like a city idea really breaks down. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think I mentioned briefly, but like it's a it's a whole other thing that needs to be explored because. Um, like in a city, in a you, you there yes, there is a trust and a power gap between citizens and the government. But like at least in much of the U.S., it's somewhat democratic, and there are ways to do file public records requests, complaints. There are elections where you can vote people out. There are referenda where you can vote law in, and all of these like built-in institutional incentives where there's like a direct pathway um, for uh, citizens and people to influence their government. Whereas like with a for-profit company company, like no matter how many oversight boards they create, no matter how many committees or like we're gonna like listen and learn, do do like a listening tour or whatever Zuckerberg did, like it's not actually democratic, right? Like we all know this. They're accountable to right. profit. They're accountable to shareholders. And yes, they do user research and they listen to users, but they only do that insofar as it's how do we keep users happy enough that we keep making money? And in particular, how do we keep the users who make money on this platform because like not all users are valued the same
0: no i think all of that is absolutely 100 true um so like what 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 other lessons do you think that online communities could take from you know civil civic infrastructure and urban planning to improve things for their members
1: yeah um so i think like one thing that i mentioned a little bit is just like Like you you have to recognize that you are the decision maker, you are an authority, and then you got to make those policies and ethical judgment calls. I'm not saying don't make them, but make them, say what they are and stand by them. And if somebody changes your mind, also stand by that and be just like very communicative and transparent, like manage those expectations um, around that. And I think that will just do a lot. Like I think about how, um, like let's say you want to do a major new development in a neighborhood. And that could potentially be perceived as gentrification. Um, and if you are a planner or the, a city council representative or the government interfacing with this community, like there are gonna be concerns. And before you actually just start like building stuff or like approving business permits to build, um, you go, and talk with members of the community, you ask them what they need, you actually respond to them, you change plans, you approve various like benefits and stipends in re- in reaction. Uh, and so like, I think in the same way, like when a company is about to make a major change to their feature that might affect their users in different ways, like these can be communicated better. Um, They can be communicated before they're made. You can get user input along the way in public forums and not only with like particular focus groups that nobody knows about. Um, And doing like things like impact assessments, especially on like edge case users, whether that means... Um, people who are activists, whether that means like, I know like sex workers often get booted off platforms, and they lose their livelihoods that way, like all these users who have a lot more at risk, like there needs to be impact assessments before implementing like feature changes or new content moderation policies to understand uh, how will they be affected. Again, I don't know whether people will do this, because um, there's not a huge incentive to keep some of these right. people on your platform, if all you hear about is money, but, like I would like to see some of those um like community engagement practices more implemented in uh social media platforms
0: cool. well, um that's i I, I love this topic, and I wish we could go on about it for. Much longer than we have here today. (laughs) Um, uh, How can people, you know, if people want to learn more about your work or what you're working on these days, uh, how can how can they find you or what do you or what else are you working on?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And thank you again for inviting me on. I, I love talking and thinking about this stuff. Uh, If people want to find me, so I I use Twitter pretty regularly. I'm at Jasmine W. Sun. I also run a newsletter and event series called Reboot on tech, humanity, and power. We do author events twice a month. We review uh, the latest books in the genre. We publish original essays. Um, If you want to subscribe, you can find that at reboothq.substack.com. So those are the main channels by which I push out, like writing and things like that. But yeah, thank you for giving me this opportunity to come and share.
0: No, and thanks for coming on. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for listening to This Must Be The Place. You can find out more or subscribe at thismustbetheplacepodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at T-M-B-T-P underscore podcast. Our theme was composed by Will from America, and our logo was designed by Marissa Epstein. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.